0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Learner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on refugee women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the third show in our series on women in Maine who've come here as refugees from war. We're focused on the experience of refugee women in particular, to learn about the human experience of being a refugee that we may not be hearing on the news. My guest today is from Syria, a country bordered by Lebanon on the west and Iraq on the east. Syria was colonized by the French after World War I and gained independence in 1946. The country was ruled under emergency law from 1963 to 2011, which suspended most constitutional protections for citizens. The current president, Bashar al-Assad, has been in power since 2000. My guest is Anna, who arrived here from Syria two and a half years ago. And currently, as you know, Syria is in the midst of a crisis, with Bashar al-Assad fighting to maintain power. Over 340,000 people have been killed, and over four million Syrians have left the country searching for safety. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Anna. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your life in Syria before you left. What what were you doing and what was it like?
1: Well, um, I grew up in a small city. I finished my college degree in another country, then I got my master, then I went to the big city, (laughs) like a lot of young people my age, to work there.
0: We're talking about Damascus.
1: Yes, about Damascus, yes. I, um, I lived and worked there by myself. Then I met my husband. And we were uh, people from the middle class. Um, we used to be like any young people, but maybe a little bit more responsible, you know? <laughs> Working hard during the day, having fun during the weekend, meeting with the family, having big gatherings, uh, celebrating every occasion over a big meal of food that's all home prepared, planning our lives like anyone else, saving money for a better thing, trying to buy a, a house, then a car, and just planning our future like any young couple.
0: And so you said you have a master's degree. What is your field?
1: I have a background in computer science and a degree in uh, master's degree in Business Administration, MBA. Ah, okay. And so you have this
0: rich life with many family and friends in it and all these plans and dreams. What were the circumstances that made you leave Syria?
1: So the revolution started 2011, and after a year, I found myself I was pregnant. There was a lot of fighting where I live. I um, One day I woke up and it was surrounded and there was shelling and bombing. And um, a lot of my friends, everyone was pregnant. And no one was able to leave the, their houses after the sunset. So everyone had like pre-scheduled C-sections. So in Women, other words, you couldn't deliver your baby if I after get sunset. The, if I no if I get in labor after sunset, it's just like kind of good luck to me, you know. What would happen if you went out in your car? There was uh, there was a lot of uh, of search points, a lot of kidnapping, so you can basically leave your home and never come back. People could get detained for no reason, just because whoever was on the checkpoint, they don't like the way they talk, the way they look. Maybe they think their name is weird. You can get detained for that. And someone will call and negotiate for money, then more money. And in like 70% of the cases, this person will never come back home. There is even nobody found. You just simply don't know where are they. When I found myself pregnant, I start thinking, I can't raise a child in such a world, even if I'm, if I'm going to leave everything behind, my friends, my family, my good job, everything I saved for. It was just like, this is not safe. This is, I don't want my child to grow up. Feeling afraid, not even having like the basic need of safety. You can be just walking in the street, going to your work. And then a bob will fall just next to you. There were many days where we couldn't even get to work or the roads would be closed. During the last few months of my stay there, I used to walk for like, I was like seven months pregnant. I used to walk for maybe like almost two hours because we will be carpooling and the the, the nearest point will be like an hour and a half walking there was lack of electricity gas water when you're living in danger you have all this adrenaline maybe you think you're fine you think that if you're you have no heat at your house and you're if you're staying under the blanket you know the whole time wearing like gloves and hats you can't even like shower because it's too cold and That is everything is fine. You can survive it. You can sleep through it. The sun raises, or you can sit and read in a candle. But when you come and you're, you're looking from this from the outside, then you realize that that's not okay. That's not anything that you would like someone that you love to live through it. Your child shouldn't go through this.
0: So it sounds like conditions were terrible in so many ways, but something about being pregnant and the thought of bringing a child into this was sort of like decisive for you.
1: Yes, it was decisive. I can risk my own life, but not uh, my child's life. And so once you made that decision, what happened? Um, We were one of the lucky ones to get a tourist visa for the States, I was like eight months pregnant because we know that if you give birth in um, in the States, the child can have uh, a nationality. So someone will maybe will care about him if something happened to him. He has actually a chance in this life.
0: So The sense I get from you is that while you were there, you were so in survival mode that you were just like coping but yes. then once you were out of that situation you could kind of look on
1: it it all comes back to you actually
0: yeah how does it come back to you I mean do you feel sometimes haunted like do you get nightmares I, about it Or
1: I mean 4th of July is torture for me <sighs> I I, um, I can't hear all those fireworks because uh, I used to sit at my desk at my work and then hearing the airplanes just bombarding people and we used to live like down the mountain and the military base for the regime was just above us so you can actually hear the and that you know that someone has died just like 20 miles away from you and you can't do anything you can't do anything about it literally anything
0: yeah, so this is like a hallmark of PTSD, like these reminders, they trigger you right back into yeah.
1: it. Yeah. And I saw this with my own eyes.
0: You saw, When you say I saw this with my own eyes, what do you mean?
1: I mean, I saw, I, I mean, I was like in the building and I can see the airplanes going and just like dropping the, the bomb and then everything under it is just, it's a big mess of fire. And you know that there is, it's a, there's people there. Children, women. Right. Under siege and you can't do anything.
0: Do you find that you follow
1: Syrian news closely here or do you find that it's too hard to do that? It's too hard for me. I can't I can't read the details. I just I'm always checking on my family that everyone is okay. Because it's just a matter of second, just if maybe if they chose to change their way <laughs> to work or to home, maybe maybe they will are you trying guess, um, to bring your family here? It's really hard to bring someone into the states actually.
0: Could they come as tourists and apply for asylum the way you did,
1: and it's really kind of impossible even to get a tourist visa now, yes.
0: And is that because there are so many refugees trying to get out of Syria and into other countries all over that the system is shutting down to them, or why is that?
1: I think that for the states, it's an old law. The immigrants law goes back to the 50s, maybe. It was never updated. It's a long process. So um, you will apply for the asylum, then you will wait for the interview. And you can wait for years, not for a month. And then after the interview, then you will kind of wait for the approval or the denial. And this also can be years. So there is no time frame. They always say, we are doing security check. And then there is <laughs> there is like not enough employees. And then we can meanwhile apply also for the work permit. And we should get it, like, in 180 days. But this didn't happen in our case. We waited for almost a year till we get our work permit.
0: So you arrive here, you apply for asylum, and in that time that you're waiting to work, how do you survive?
1: We, um, we are responsible people. We didn't work under the table. We were just waiting for our work permit. So we were living basically on our savings, there is no help, there is no financial help for anyone who's waiting for asylum. So we were stretching the dollar, trying to to do like a mission impossible because we don't know if we're gonna wait for a month, for six months, for a year. You can't have a big toy maybe for a child because you don't know if, <laughs> if you're leaving in a couple of months because we are just in waiting an answer and waiting.
0: So you arrived here eight months pregnant and you must have given birth very soon after you arrived, is that right?
1: That's right.
0: And then, so you you now have a child you're trying to look after but with a very, very uncertain future.
1: Yes. Is there a Syrian community here in Portland that helped you? There are people who helped me, but it's, um, everyone is busy and no one is like your family. No one's like your immediate family. You have a lot of nice people who will donate things to you, but emotional support is much important, especially when you are afraid, you're by yourself, three in the morning, <laughs> one week old is crying, and you don't know what's going on. When you're too afraid, you you can't even afford to get sick.
0: Right.
1: Yes. So it seems like in some ways you traded
0: one set of extremes, you know, the, the real fear for your life and the life of your child, for another set of extremes being here, which was, it sounds like, profound uncertainty about whether you could stay, profound uncertainty about whether you could afford to look after yourself and get work, and the loss of all your relatives.
1: And not even like having a chance to prove myself that I want to be part of this community. What do you mean? I mean, you are just sitting and waiting for an answer. Yes or no. You're responsible, you don't want to work under the table. You want to prove that you are a good person and you're basically living day to day.
0: So you're kind of in this limbo, really. And I hear you say, you know, I want to prove that I'm, I want to get involved in my community, but I, it, it, it's hard to invest when you don't even know if you're going to stay here. Exactly. Yeah. So I understand that you did just get your asylum approved. Yes. How did you hear?
1: By a letter, which was nice. Our lawyer sent us a letter that we are approved. Yes. Could you So tell me, <laughs> that when you saw the envelope, did you, what did you think? Maybe I get my first good night of sleep. For the first time (laughs) in Mm. like three years. Mm. So you've been very worried. Yes. It's been stressful for us, really.
0: I can't help but wonder, you know, as a psychiatrist, whether it's hard to... One of the consequences of PTSD is that it's hard to feel safe anywhere afterwards. It's hard to let your guard down and like really know that you're safe. And I'm imagining that living with that kind of uncertainty and stress made it much harder to really experience safety here. Do you feel like you've been able to, to feel the fundamental safety for your
1: life while you've been here? No. Tell me more about that. It's starting over in a new community, you know? It's all starting from zero. I love plans. I love to have like my checklist, (laughs) and I don't have this anymore. You think that you figure it all out. You think, I know how my child is going to be an A student, you know, or I know how my child is going to be an athlete. I figured everything out. And now you have to learn everything from zero. And you doubt yourself. What do you mean?
0: What's an example?
1: Everyone tells me everything is going to be fine. You're going to find your corner of the world here. (laughs) It's safe. It's, uh, It's okay. People accept others. And I really don't know. I really don't know. Are they just saying this to make me feel better? Are they really accepting me? Can they be my friends? If I'm in need, can I ask for anyone's help? I really don't know that. Because now I can't ask anyone to help me with anything. I feel now too much.
0: Do you mean like you don't want to ask for too much? You don't want to burden
1: someone else? Yes. You don't want to burden someone else. You don't want to get attached to people. It's just kind of hard for me to now to communicate with others.
0: So it's affected your ability to make friends here.
1: I have friends, but it's, it's always like, are they my friends or do they feel like they want to do something good and help me? Right. And you didn't have that before, right? No. I'm imagining at home you didn't no. feel
0: like the, the sort of the, a dependent or a possibility of being seen that way. No. Right. I'm imagining that's hard. That's hard to accept. It's hard. It's not your sense of yourself
1: no and i it kind of makes me live in two different worlds so i have my my social media connection my my old friends why not a lot of about their lives and then i have my life here and we are in two separate worlds i'm having maybe problems and issues i can't i don't find anyone even to complain to because i'm supposed to be like in a much better place now I am blessed to be outside the country and but it's hard. It's hard. That makes
0: a lot of sense. And it's almost like I hear you saying I don't want to be ungrateful
1: but there are things that are really hard. Yeah. That's really hard. I I was there uh, when it was getting harder and harder. People now are selling everything they own and working for maybe 14 hours in, in, in Turkey or Lebanon just to save some money and go on death boats. And they put their children there. They are that desperate. And I understand. It's sad. I can't even blame them because I understand. You just feel like even there's like a one out of a thousand chance to have something better, I'm gonna do it. Either all of us to die or all of us to survive. And I understand because I know how bad it is.
0: Right, so it's like when we see here these pictures of these crowded boats or that terrible image of that young boy that died on that beach. I get the sense that you're, you, you know that place of desperation and why a parent would take that kind of risk with their child. It speaks to how terrible the alternative is.
1: Yes. This was my like, basic mental image, to go and put my child in a daycare, go to work, and then get stuck and never be able to come and get him. That's the kind of
0: thing that gives people nightmares. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your child is now a little bit over two. What do you tell him about
1: Syria? The nice stuff. <laughs> yeah. He's so little. Yes, he's so little. And um I always tell him the nice stuff. I also show him pictures, the rest of my family, you know. I try to keep the nice cultural things, you know, like the certain habits, even if they're kind of sound like, ah, oh. what do you say when you think that it's a bad or a good omen? All the funny stuff that I didn't believe, you know. that like is superstitious. Uh, superstitious, yeah. <laughs> the cultural thing that I've, I always thought that they're like, ah, oh, this is not true. Now I kind of introduce my child. Like what would be <laughs> an example of that? Well, oh, that's funny. Okay, so, <laughs> like, never leave your boots upside down. <laughs> uh-huh. That's funny. Is that, a, is
0: that like a, a that,
1: That's so rude in our costumes. That's rude. That's so rude. And I was like, this is rude. There is no reason. I know that's not rude. But I just simply tell him, this is so rude. So one day, if he can ever come back, <laughs> he will get what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> he'll be able to fit in, but yes. he'll know. Yes. <laughs> so... You know, I think for many Americans, we think about, you know, how can we make our home a welcoming place for people to come? And I, I want to ask you, what are the steps that you would like to see us taking here in Maine to become more hospitable to people when they arrive here from Syria?
1: We need to pressure whoever is responsible for those asylum cases. People get desperate. I mean, getting a work permit for us to, took us a year instead of, of just like six months or a couple of months, like the others, you know. Let the immigrant feel that they are part of the society. Let them feel part of the community. Help them settle faster, you know. Help them to be able to get their families here. For me, I can get my family here only if I get the American citizenship, which will take me about six years, and then if i wanna apply for my mom, it will take another eleven years yeah i'm sorry to hear we that. are we are not asking about money, we are not asking about food stamps, medicare I don't know what what's even called main care we just wanna a chance and we can prove ourselves. When you say that, you know, when you have a feeling of belonging and having a
0: stake in the community, it it evokes more of an investment in that community. So exactly. it makes sense it's to everybody's benefit.
1: Yes, exactly. I my husband and I applied for maybe each one of us for like a hundred of job and it was really hard for us even to get to the interview part. Both of us used to to work in multinational organizations, but it's kind of, uh, they will not acknowledge that unless it's here. It's
0: discouraging.
1: It is, but it is discouraging. I know that I'm underemployed, but I know that I'm blessed. Are you working? More than others. Yes, I am working. My husband is studying, not working yet. We kind of... Mm -hmm. So he's gone back to school. Yes.
0: That's a good way to use this time, I guess.
1: Yes. Yeah. And he's still looking.
0: (laughs) For work. Yes. Yeah. He's still looking. What, What do you find yourself missing the most?
1: That's a hard question. Maybe I want to be as happy as I was before. I have the ability to kind of adapt to my situation. There was many things going on in Syria before the uprising. But at least I thought that I knew that I can take care of it. Now I don't know anymore what I can do. What do you mean? I mean, the States is different from where I grew up, and now I'm still adapting. Mm -hmm. I know if you see me walking the street that you would think that I was born and raised here. I don't look different from other people maybe here. I don't have the... um, By which you mean you have white skin. Yes. You're wearing kind of very Western clothes. Yes. No one will judge me before they speak to me. They will not have an idea till they start talking to me, and they hear about my story, and then they, oh, you're not from here. This happened to you. Yes, but I'm still trying to figure out. You're in a whole new world. Yes, it's a new world for me. No matter how, how much you think you know, how much you watch opera... <laughs> Oprah? What's the Oprah link here? Oprah. 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 Oh. <laughs> I'm like, Opra? what? <laughs> Oprah? What? <laughs> Oprah. I'm a fan. Okay, I'm a no big much. fan. We have Oprah in Syria. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Yes, we used to have... Her, her show would broadcast like two days after the one. in. But it's still different when you come Did here. watching Oprah prepare you to Yes, a lot. This is how I actually learned English. From watching Oprah? Yes. It, it just... Reading books, it's different than hearing someone talking to you. So, yes, watching TV helped me a lot.
0: (laughs) I think that Syrian refugees are kind of on people's minds more today than they have been maybe ever. What are the things that feel most important to you for Americans to understand about refugees from Syria now?
1: I think it's too late now. This could have been resolved when it started, and no one cared about the people there. Civilian people are the ones who paid for everything. It's too late. You can give money. There is great organizations. Every dollar will help, but it's too late to really, like, help. What should have been done? There was many similar situations, lessons learned, I think, from Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or Egypt. Something could have been done, and no one cared. To stop Assad. Yes. So I hear you saying it's too late in a way to bring
0: home like this. So much of this suffering is unnecessary and could have been prevented. And there's something that really adds to the tragedy because of that. But of course, we are here now. And for people of goodwill who do want to do something, you mentioned there are good organizations to give money to. Which ones do you have in mind?
1: If they want to help, I will go with um, Doctors Without Borders.
0: Is there an organization here locally in Portland, Maine, that you would like to name that people could support or get involved with?
1: Yes. Two organizations helped us a lot. WIN, which is Welcoming Immigrant Network for Greater Portland. Uh, They have a page on the Facebook. They really try to help us to connect with peoples, with resources, and all the people that are really wonderful. I love them. And Furniture Friends, Um, they are really great. They try to help people who came here and they have nothing, they will provide furniture to them. So, you know the website?
0: Yes, they're at furniturefriendsportland.org. Yes. Yes, and they will help furnish people's apartments when they have nothing. Yes, they do. Anna, thank you so much for coming and being my guest and telling me these stories. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me and giving me the chance to speak. If you want to stay connected to these
0: issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including our earlier series on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. A quick reminder, please do take a moment and go to safespaceradio.com to click on survey to give us your feedback about this show. Thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.